The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when we think about what you've done for us on the cross, we, uh, we're humbled, we're amazed. Our minds simply can't wrap around the depths of your sacrifice for us. To think that you wore our robes of shame and sin and darkness. That you shed your blood for us. That we might wear your robe of righteousness and purity. That we might be sanctified and set apart for you. Because of your shed blood, we might be cleansed and made whole and clean and right. Reconciled to our Father in heaven. Blows us away. Blows us away. How marvelous, how truly wonderful is that kind of a love. And that it's directed towards people like us is even even further beyond our comprehension. But for it, we are immensely grateful. And we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. We come before you filled to overflowing with gratitude for what you've done for us. We could never say enough how thankful we are. We could never fully grasp your love for us, and we could never repay what you've done for us. But Lord, it is our worship that we offer you this morning. We come offering you the best that we have, the best of our singing, the best of our prayer, the best of our attention to your word. It is, in a very real way, our sacrifice of praise and our offering to you. We come not, Lord, to seek things for ourselves, but to offer ourselves to you. And so we pray that you would take our offering this morning. Our songs, our financial gifts that we'll give at the end. The attention to your word that we offer you this morning. I pray that you would take it, Lord, and you would do something with it by your Holy Spirit. Magnify what we offer to you and return it, Lord, to us and and the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Speak to us this morning through your word. Teach us, Lord. Reveal yourself to us in ways that are new and profound and deep and real. Lord Jesus, make yourself known to us in real ways. That we might worship you even more. That we might love you even more. That we might be even more committed than ever to your cause and to your kingdom and to you. Father, we pray for your blessing on our pastor this morning as he opens up the word to teach us. Fill him with your spirit. Empower him to preach your word with with authority that comes only from you. And authority that's derived from your word. We submit ourselves to you and what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to hear it. Help us to receive it. Help us to respond to it in faith and obedience. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. Last week was the starting point of the final week of the life of Jesus here on earth. Until he comes again. That point has begun with the triumphal entry. In the middle of the week, I listened to Pastor Greg's message, Palm Monday. What a shocker. I thought we could start a new religion like in, like, like um, Second Day Adventist or something and start, start worshiping on Monday instead. But I listened to that on my way back from being out of town in the middle of the week. <clears throat> I didn't time it, but it must have been a long sermon. I got home and got an email from Verizon saying I was over my data plan. <laughs> so, I go figure, I never go over my data plan. <clears throat> Might have contributed to that by that long psalm you read before the... So, might have been a brief sermon. So, we've come to the last week in the life of Christ. Uh, 
and the temple surroundings there in Jerusalem, <clears throat> heading toward the cross on Friday. But let me warn you that just because we're at the last week of um, the life of Christ in the Gospel of John, it will take us months to get through this week. In the next chapter, chapter 13, begins what we, what many people call the upper room experience um, for about five chapters, five or six chapters, um, <clears throat> which is just the glorious passage. John spends five chapters of them in one room, Jesus and his disciples. I took a class back in the 80s, the 1980s, not the 1880s, that, um, uh, called the upper a graduate course, called the upper room experience, just on those chapters in John. So I'm looking forward to that time together. In the next couple of weeks, we'll finish chapter 12. Also, back in um, <clears throat> back in the year 2000, um, when I started preaching in this pulpit, there was uh, there was a big, huge, bulky wooden pulpit. <clears throat> Sorry if you were here then, I'm offending you right now, but it was just just a big piece of furniture that I couldn't stand. And uh, so, I'm, after a few years, you know, I figured I'd earned a blank check or two. Um, I, I moved it out, and I put in a more historic pulpit, which which um, we dated back to 1922. It came from the old church downtown, and, and it was smaller. It just fit me better. Um, <clears throat> and yet the good thing about that large, heavy... You know, the good thing about this one is it's on wheels. Um, but that large, heavy pulpit I first started preaching um, behind... Right on the back of it was a plaque. Is a plaque. I guess it's still there. A, a plaque that, for just for me to see, that said, we would see Jesus. I realized after I started preaching here that that's a common thing on pulpits. I'd never seen it before. I think Spurgeon actually had that on his a pulpit, that reminder to the preacher that the people see Jesus and not the preacher. Those words are in this text today, beginning at verse 20 of John chapter 12. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. In Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And that's the word of God. And if you're like me, you read this text, and you'll think, that's really hard. That's tough. Hating your life, losing your life, how can I do that? My life's just going just fine, so this doesn't make sense. Something I've said to myself recently. And for me, I get to preach it, and Pastor Greg and I get to encourage you to live this way. 
But I don't really have to live that way, do I? And so about halfway through this past week, I thought, maybe we'll just skip this passage. Because we tend to put life in an imaginary box. Now, listen to me. Because life in that box makes sense to us. And we love this box. We feel pretty comfortable regarding our knowledge of life. The older we get, the last thing we want to do is encounter anything or anybody that just might show us that real life is outside of the box. And heaven forbid that life with Jesus is outside of the box. But that's the issue that these Greeks are dealing with, these Gentiles. And all of us are confronted with this particular text. How does my life line up with Jesus' demands? The main challenge of this text is, are you willing to follow him to death? (laughs) This event in these seven verses is most significant. And at first reading, you might not realize that. But it's the only, John is doing all, writing all this for a reason. And this is the only event that he mentions between the triumphal entry and the Last Supper. Now, we know there are, a lot, there are other events, other things take place. This is the only event that John mentions between the triumphal entry and the Last Supper. And it's very significant. Greeks. John calls them Greeks. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That really means Gentiles from some place in a Greek-speaking area. It's a Greek-speaking world. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which is the common Greek of the day. They were probably God-fearers. Uh, They were converts to the theology of Judaism, or at least on some level. They were converts to the ethics of Judaism on some level, but they hadn't undergone um, circumcision. They had not become Jews themselves. They appreciated Judaism. Um, They appreciated monotheism. They appreciated the purity of the teaching of the Jews but not convinced enough to become proselytes by circumcision. But they loved Judaism. They're what we call God-fearers to the point that they attended the feasts. And in this case, it was Passover. And we know for a fact these people existed. We see them all over the book of Acts. Acts 17, verse 4. Some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. Um, some call them, one of your translations may say, worshiping Greeks. Uh, we call them God-fearers. Judaism had uh, great influence over pagans all over that part of the world. They they had been scattered long before the coming of Christ. It's important for us to remember when we're thinking about Gentiles that, that Gentiles or wise men from the East were the ones to first come and worship the newborn king. And here they are right before the crucifixion coming to him again. 
So we know after the um, triumphal entry, Jesus goes back to Lazarus' house in Bethany. He comes then he, the next day. He comes back to Jerusalem, and uh, be it um, Monday or Tuesday, he has his encounter with these Gentiles. We know too that, G, that, that they weren't, at least in our minds, in reading the Gospels. They weren't the priority. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus even said that he himself came for the purpose of reaching the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, now the reason for that was that Israel was God's elected people. We know that. We know that from the Abrahamic covenant, that, that, that these were the people by which the world was to be reached. That's God's plan. That's God's program up to this point. And then we have this huge transition here. Some would call the beginning of a new dispensation, not in the dispensationalist idea of the term, but just from the dictionary definition of the term. It's the beginning of a new time. A new thing is happening. Paul talks about it in Romans 11 when Paul is dealing with this entire situation in Romans 11:25, when Paul says the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. That's the chapter he's talking about, them being grafted in to God's family. And Jesus knew God's plan. In fact, Jesus was there with the Father when the plan came up, determining the plan. And he now knew, finally, finally, he now knows from the, from the passages we have just covered prior to this one, we, he now knows Israel has rejected him. They have failed to respond. We've seen that over and over and over. In fact, he mentions it a little bit later in verses 36 and 37 of this chapter when he says, Well, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Rejection. And then suddenly these Gentiles show up, desiring to see him. We would see Jesus. Israel is rejecting him, and now the gospel, for a time, will go out to the Gentiles. He cleansed the temple courtyard. This is where they are, best we can tell. He cleansed the temple courtyard of the money changers who were always found there, and they they would they would do their buying and selling there in the court of the Gentiles. You see, there was the court of the Gentiles, and then there was the court of women, and then there was the inner court at the temple. Jesus wasn't immediately accessible to them because they're trying to work their way to him through Philip and. Andrew, and could be that he's in the inner court teaching. He could go there. Not really sure where he is at this point. But these Gentiles couldn't go there. They were prohibited from going to the inner court. But there was something sincere and earnest and serious about their request to see him. Which sharply contrasts what we saw with the Jewish leaders who just preferred that Jesus go away and stay away. So they come to Philip. Um, John doesn't tell us why they come to Philip. Uh, it could be Philip, that his name is Greek. Philippos is the Greek name. 
It could be that they knew Philip from, you know, between Judea and Galilee, there's the Decapolis. And that's this Gentile area of Greek-speaking people. And they could have come from there. Bethsaida is there. And so Philip uh, is from Bethsaida. And so it could be somebody knew him, had done business with him or something. Andrew is also a Greek name. We just don't know why they came. They were accessible. They were the accessible um, disciples. We know back in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Philip and Andrew are the ones that the crowd comes to. They're the ones who know what's going on in the crowd. They might have been the outgoing disciples. Who knows? They come to Philip and they say, Sir, very respectful, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And see doesn't mean look at. Uh, See means we want to interview. We want to have a conversation with him. So Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Here are people who are not of the lost sheep of Israel, the house of Israel. And they want to see him. A group of them want to see him. So Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, hey, some of the Greeks want to interview you. That's not in the Bible. But that's pretty much as far as we see these guys. (laughs) We don't see them ever again. They come in. They tell Philip, we want to see Jesus. We never see him again. There is no conversation as far as we know. There is no interview as far as we know. Gentiles are show up and they're gone that quickly. But there is a strong connection here between the cleansing of the temple, which is an illustration of the destruction of the temple, and these Greeks arriving pretty much the same time to see Jesus. It marks a huge change. And a good change for you and me. Clear indication that the Lord Jesus intends to, what he says later in this chapter, draw all men to himself. Draw all men to himself. And so he tells us his glorification is imminent. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it could be the Greeks did meet Jesus. It could be that Philip and Andrew got them together with Jesus. We just don't see it. John doesn't tell us that. We simply don't know. And like I said, it's the strangest thing that in such a significant moment in Scripture, these guys show up and in a verse they're gone. But they could have been drawn to him, as he mentioned in verse 32 later. Seems that the Lord took the request of these men as a kind of signal. Don't you see that? They come to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew went. Philip told Andrew. Andrew told Philip. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And immediately Jesus says, the hour has come. Judaism may have rejected Jesus, but the world for whom he came to die, now ready to receive him, and they showed up. (laughs) They've come seeking him. Seems to be the thought here. Paraphrase it. Tell it a different way. The hour has certainly arrived for my being glorified. I'm about to leave the world, send to my Father, complete the work that I've done, and be highly exalted. My earthly ministry of humiliation is ending, and my time of glory is drawing near. But all this is to be brought about 
in a way that's very different from the way that you're thinking, because the way that you're thinking right now is we just had the triumphal entry. The way that you're thinking that it was it's going to be an earthly glory. But I'm going to the cross first, not a throne. First, I have to be condemned, crucified, killed, slain. And he says, it's right now. My hour has come. Speaks about the entire work of his atonement. In his glorification, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So this glory then is heavenly glory. It's not earthly glory. And there were hints. There were hints in that triumphal entry that earthly glory was about to take place. That's why the people were so pumped up. But this glory he's talking about here in verse 23, directly connected to the fact that the hour has come. For John, writing this, glorification is a supremely important event. It's related to that hour that will come. Whereby Jesus... Finally, his, his, his ministry is divided into two sections. We've, and we've seen both sections now. John 2, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Later in that same chapter, in verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Chapter 8, verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because, what? His hour had not yet come. We've seen both sides. And then we see his glorification. Verse 16 of this chapter. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 23, we just read, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Chapter 17, verse 1. That great high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The very first sentence of his prayer. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. That is the greatness of of this work of redemption that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let, let, and he uses creation, he uses the original creation to relate to all of this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's important to notice that glorified in the Gospel of John always refers to Jesus' atoning work, his death, resurrection, so on. And the disciples, especially with the triumphal entry, they would have thought his triumph was going to be as the king, the king of kings right here on earth. About to be crowned the king. What Jesus meant was crucifixion. Throughout this Passion Week, throughout this Holy Week, the hour had come. The hour is a powerful demonstration of 
that particular point, that Jesus came into this world for our purpose to give up his life and to save people from their sins. Barrett, Barrett says, Here John does not represent Jesus in direct conversation with the Greeks. This, however, is not careless writing, for the rest of the chapter winds up the ministry of Jesus to the Jews in order that the true and spiritual conversation of Jesus with the Greeks may begin on the other side of the crucifixion. So since we don't have it, it could mean that he didn't have a conversation with these Gentiles, but he's going to have a conversation with Jesus through his, for the, these Gentiles through his spirit on the other side of the crucifixion. That's the most important conversation. No doubt he's talking about his death on the cross here. Leon Meyer says the gospel is a gospel for the whole world only because of the cross. Listen. His glory, his being glorified, consisted of opening doors wider and wider and wider so that men and women from every tribe and every race would become members of His spiritual family. It's also almost the very last view that we have of Jesus in the Revelation. John, who wrote the Gospel, wrote the Revelation as well. And in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We know what he means by this because we know the rest of the story. But those that he's speaking to right now, they don't know what he's talking about. They don't know what he means. And so he gives them an illustration. Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, pay attention. When Jesus says truly, truly, pay attention. Frankly, when Jesus says anything, pay attention. I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Pay attention. The grain of wheat shows us the great paradox of the life of Jesus and the Christian life. The way to fruitfulness lies in death. Now, I'm not a horticulturalist. I don't have a green thumb. I can't grow grass. Ask Stephen Watford. And I'll probably butcher this explanation, but after the service, you can go to Mike Jackson or Frank Stennon, probably many, many other people, and just ask them, what's the, what's the truth? He really butchered that explanation. But Jesus gives an agricultural illustration. But I do think it's a picture we can all grasp. Certainly it's a picture familiar to those people in that agrarian society. If you want to start a garden, you have to start by putting seeds in the ground. I know that. In my case, they won't come up. But I do know that the seeds have to go in the ground. We, you, you, you must bury the seeds. And you can't dig up the seeds every day and look at them and see how they're doing. You bury them and you leave them there. The seed is buried and abandoned to death. And only then can harvest be possible. 
So Jesus uses a natural illustration to explain the supernatural. Everyone knew. Everyone knew that before the crop could be harvested, the seed had to be planted. Those grains of seed were placed in the ground, and they had to rot, and they had to decay, and they had to die if they were to bear fruit, if there was going to be a crop produced. And this plant, this one seed, and the plant that comes from it, possessed the potential to produce millions of grains. You see, you're riding down the road and you see a wheat field and every stalk of wheat is planted in a grave. You see a rose bush that rose bush is planted in a grave. Something went in there and died before it could produce anything. If we refuse to bury the seed, keep it to ourselves without sowing it, we never ever reap a harvest. You've got to let it die before you can get corn or before you can get wheat. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead. He's telling us. He's telling us there, he said, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, he has the power to duplicate his life in millions and millions of people. To reap a great harvest. He has the power to duplicate his life in every single person who places their faith and trust in him. There's absolute necessity for Jesus to die if man is to come to life. And only on that basis are these Greeks, these Gentiles, Jews, everybody else genuinely, genuinely able to be reconciled to God. And so he says this, and he means he'll soon die. And that by means of his death, he's going to produce a lot of life. Can't be the Savior of the world without dying first. They were heralding him uh, as the king of Israel in that triumphal entry. They, uh, they expected him to save them right now. That's what Hosanna means, save now. They expected him to save them right now, this very moment. And what they failed to grasp was that he could only save them by giving up his life. By experiencing the death penalty for sin in the sinner's place. By being a substitute. By dying as a substitute for his people. It's what they failed to grasp. It's what some of you failed to grasp. He died as your substitute. And you've still never trusted that he could do that. For these disciples standing around to wish him not to die is to dislike the idea of his death as they, they did. These disciples did not like this idea. It's like keeping the seed locked up in a drawer, locked up in a closet, or locked up in a granary somewhere, never to be planted. Unless I die... Whatever you and your private opinion may think, my purpose in coming to the world will not be accomplished. But if I die, multitudes of souls will be saved. Jesus faced the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus understood the cost. No salvation without the sacrifice of his life. And that makes our choice pretty simple. We can stand behind Christ as one who faced the wrath of God for our sin on our behalf, or we can face that wrath ourselves. What will it be? And his death on the cross is the only satisfaction that God requires. To sum it all up, it's simply this. Death is the prelude to blessing. So far as the nation of Israel, so far as the, these Gentiles are concerned, death is a prelude of, uh, to blessing so far as salvation is concerned. Death is a prelude to blessing so far as the Christian life is concerned. You see, the, the, the example of Jesus Christ will not save you. His living a holy, perfect life, that, that won't save you. That's not even His message. Jesus' teaching won't save you. Jesus did not say that He could point out the way to God and if men and women would only follow the way that He pointed out, they would find Him. And Jesus didn't say, I'll show you the way. Jesus didn't say, I'll tell you the way. What did He say? Jesus said, I am the way. His teaching won't save you. Charles Simeon said, His death perfectly satisfied all the demands of law and justice, so that God may be just and yet the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. View the death of the Christ in this light and say whether His crown of thorns were not His brightest diadem and the cross on which He expired His most glorious throne. Men indeed saw nothing but shame in his crucifixion, but God and angels beheld it replete with glory. By his death, millions obtained life. (laughs) If Jesus hadn't died, there'd be no human being in heaven. Before there can be resurrection power and fruitfulness, there must be death. That's his his glorification illustrated. Now we see where his glorification gives life. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That passage is okay until I got to this verse. Application of verse 24. The man who loves his life loses it by the very fact that his love for his life takes away the possibility of the real life that he's going to have outside of that comfortable box he's decided to live in. Phillips' translation says, the man who loves his own life will destroy it. Leon Morris says, The man whose priorities are right has such an attitude of love for the things of God that it makes all interest in the affairs of this life appear by comparison as hatred. You see that? That second part, Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's not hatred in the sense that we think of it. Let me read that again. Leon Morris. The man whose priorities are right. I'm sorry, I don't have it up. The man whose priorities are right has such an attitude of love for the things of God that it makes all interest in the affairs of this life appear by comparison as hatred. You get that? 
loves his life, hates his life. And we're called to hate it not in the sense that we disregard it because we're created in the image of God, but in the sense that we freely give it up for God. Our life is precious to us, but only because it's something that we can give to Jesus. There are two contrasting principles here that are really important. The first part, whoever loves his life loses it. That's what we call investing in yourself is the destruction of life. Whoever loves his life loses it. A person is careful to invest in himself and to promote himself. And to indulge self and to advance self, to defend self. We love living autonomously in this man-centered world that we live in. And when we do that, there's no time for the dominion of God held over our lives. Paul, I mean, Jesus declares this again in Luke chapter 12. And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. As a self-made man, he boasts in his self-achievement. And we taunt those who have a weak faith, a weak dependent faith. That's the one who loves his life. We ridicule those They have low self-esteem because they're humble, because they're a convicted sinner. The person who loves his life doesn't realize that, like Judas didn't realize that, and Ananias and Sapphira didn't understand that, and on and on and on. The person who loses his life is on the path, who loves his life is on the path of self-destruction. That's the first part. Whoever loves his life loses it. Second part, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Depreciation of self is the preservation of self. In contrast, this person is put off by the man-centeredness of the world. This person confesses that they're poor in spirit. This person mourns over their human condition. This person hungers and thirsts for righteousness. This this way he puts himself to death. As if by crucifixion, as the Lord teaches. Yet the end result of putting self to death, you all of a sudden get... Get the pleasure of hearing those words from Christ. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he closes out, as I need to. This glorification is demanding. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Isn't that hard? He might not go where you want him to go. Isn't that hard? You got it all planned out. You got your retirement planned out. You've got you got every step of 
of your life planned out and all those things. You, you got those plans before your, your eyes and they're all fitting right in that comfortable box and it's, and it's happening. And Jesus says to you that you said one day that you would follow me. So you're going to go in this direction outside of this box. And this is real life. Anyone who serves me must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant also be. And in doing that, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We're going to talk about servanthood in the next chapter. If any person desires to serve Christ and be a Christian, he must be content to follow the Master. He must be content to walk in his footsteps. He must be content to share his lot. Do as he did. Partake of the master's inheritance in the world. And not look for good things here. Not look for crowns and kingdoms here. Not look for riches, honor and wealth and dignity here. He must be content. With the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul explains this in Romans 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the core of godliness is this. Jesus came... So that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Who'd want to shy away from the abundant life? Jesus came so that you can have life and you can have it more abundantly. Who would want to refuse that? The abundant life. Who'd want to say no to that? Everybody. As soon as you discover this abundant life is on the other side of death. It's on the other side of dying to self. It's on the other side of determining to follow Him no matter what the cost. That's where the abundant life is. Paul knew it. He's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In the next chapter, he says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I want to be, I want to be that, that little seed of wheat that falls into the ground and dies in order to bring forth much fruit. That's what I want to be. Anyone serves me must follow me and where I am, there my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. A, a person would have to be a fool to say that. Or he'd have to be the Son of God. <laughs> The answer to all life is to follow me. And the one who does that will be honored by my Father. That's really what life comes down to, following the Lord. Witnessing? No. Praying? No. Teaching? No. Singing? No. Preaching? No. Giving? No. Working? No. Following? Him. All of those other things I just mentioned flow out of following Him. Following Him in death. Death to your pleasures. Death to your ambitions. Death to your goals. Identifying with Christ in death. Made it possible 
for the Apostle Paul to live for Christ. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Death and denial. That's the principle. A couple of weeks ago, I bought some more life insurance. I figured you might kill me and Judy needs something to live on. (laughs) But I bought some more life insurance. But, you you know, think about that. And pretty quickly you realize that's a misnomer. Life insurance that doesn't pay off until you die. Jesus said, You can't even live until you die. And when you do that, your life will bear much fruit. You think about that. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. The truth of your word. For you alone are worthy to be praised. Loved, adored, and followed. I pray for those here today, Father, who can't partake of this meal because they haven't followed you. Those who don't realize that you shed your blood and gave up your body as a substitute for them. Open the eyes of their hearts this day for your glory and your glory alone. Amen. It's always a great privilege for the church to gather around the Lord's table. In a very real sense, it's a gathering of dead people looking to a dying man. shedding his blood and giving his very life so that those dead people could come alive. And that's what we do this morning. At the climax of our worship is look to the cross and remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Reflecting on his body, was beaten and mangled in many ways. Reflecting on his blood that flowed down the cross that dead people like us could come alive. And so we gather around his table this morning, and it's a serious matter of worship. And the Lord has given instructions in his word about this moment, and he's told us that as we approach his table, it's a solemn and serious time, and that we should examine ourselves before we do so. That we should see to it that any known sin in our lives is addressed, repented of, confessed before him, that we might not desecrate his table, and that we might not bring judgment upon ourselves. And so I want to invite you, if you would, just to close your eyes and bow your head for just a brief moment. And in these moments before we take this supper, you reflect on your own life and your own walk with the Lord. Reflect on what you've heard from his word this morning. And perhaps in these moments, the Holy Spirit might show you things in your life that need to be confessed and turned from. You might find his forgiveness. In these quiet moments, you do that. Lord Jesus, we come before you and approach your table this morning, understanding with with very distinct clarity our own imperfection and our own impurity. And even in these quiet moments, reflect on this week, even perhaps this day, in ways in which we've sinned. Corporately, we come together, Lord, and we confess our sin before you. As each of us does that privately in our hearts, specifically. You've told us in your word that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of our sin 
and all unrighteousness. So we seek that cleansing this morning as we gather around your table to prepare to reflect on your sacrifice of the cross, substituting yourself on our behalf. So forgive us, O Lord, cleanse us. Make us pure vessels as we approach your table now. For we pray it in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.